Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Plant Powered People podcast with your hosts, Michelle Kane, Antonio Komodo. Today, we're really excited to bring on a different type of guest. This is Charles Farrell, who is a former jazz musician, a boxing fight fixer, loan shark, and associate of organized crime figures. He's also been vegetarian since the age of 12, and he made a vow to never kill a living thing at the age of 14. Super fascinating. He's now been a dedicated vegan for many, many decades. So excited to chat with Charles Farrell. Hope you enjoy this episode as much as we do. But before we jump in, we want to say a big thank you to our sponsor. This is a really big thank you, though. A big, huge, heartfelt thank you to Better Than Bullion for sponsoring the entire season four of the Plant Powered People podcast. Tony and I, just our hearts feel so full and lucky to be able to be working and collaborating with a brand that we so dearly know and love and have been using for like a decade plus, multiple decades for you, right? For me, I only discovered Bullion uh, like 10 years ago, and it completely changed my life and revolutionized my ability to cook in the kitchen and make things taste good. And Better Than Bouillon since that moment has been in my cupboard always. I love them so much. Thank you so much, Better Than Bouillon, for supporting the show. And for all of you who haven't already jumped on the Better Than Bouillon bandwagon, please, please, please look for them in stores, just in the soup section of your local grocery store. They're in most grocery stores. They're really widely accessible. Otherwise, you can find them online betterthanbouillon.com. And we'd love to hear what yummy things you're cooking up with your better than bouillon. Michelle and I are going to be collecting some of our favorite re- recipes from our websites, Plant-Based uh, on a Budget and World of Vegan, and putting them in the show notes so that you can try better than bouillon in your own home. Maybe it's a little bit intimidating to you. Have no fear. We've got you covered. It is so simple to use. You're going to love better than bouillon. It takes up no space in your cabinet. It's easy to find at grocery stores. It's sold at many of the, of the big, big players. And I think you're just going to love this product. So check it out if you haven't already. It is again at betterthanbouillon.com. Yeah, we also have several recipes in the Friendly Vegan Cookbook that basically any cookbook that you're cooking for, any recipe that you're cooking for that calls for soup um, or like vegetable broth, any broth, you can instead use Better Than Bouillon. So thank you, Better Than Bouillon. We also want to thank our next sponsor, Maxine's Heavenly. Maxine's Heavenly makes really delicious cookies that are a little bit better for you. The first ingredient in these that I'm snacking on, which is their super soft chocolate, chocolate chunk cookies. Delicious. The first ingredient is oats. They're gluten-free, they're non-GMO, they're plant-based, they're sweetened with dates and coconut sugar, and they're just super delicious. And then they also came out with these crispy cookies including a cinnamon speculoos flavor. And it is really good. If you like those crispy, crunchy cookies, you're going to love Maxine's Heavenly. So if you're hungry for cookies that are sweetened by nature, check out maxinesheavenly.com and you can actually get 25% off your purchase with the special code PLANTS25, P-L-A-N-T-S 25. And you can also look out for them in stores. And now on to the show. Hi, Charles. Welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast. Hi, Tony. Hi, Michelle. How are you both? Good. Thank you. We're so excited. This is an unconventional story for us. Usually people watch What the Health or Game Changers and then they become inspired to make a lifestyle change. But you've been 
caring about animals for quite some time and you have such a riveting past. I cannot wait to hear more about it. So uh, I'd love to start by first having you tell us where you are right now. I'm about eight miles west of Boston. All right, Boston. Okay. So tell us about your upbringing with food. Did you grow up vegetarian or was this something that came um, later on? Well, you know, I grew up during a time when there were virtually no vegetarians around. It was nearly unheard of. So no, not only did I grow up in um, an omnivorous family, I grew up in a primarily carnivorous family. Um, And so when I decided to become a vegetarian, which I did before becoming vegan, um, I didn't know anyone else um, who was vegetarian. And I, it took me quite a number of years to even meet someone, even in Boston, which is, you know, a fairly cosmopolitan city, um, who was, was also vegetarian. One of the things that I appreciated when I was reading about you was the question, you don't eat no meat. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> I was, I was, uh, I had won a writing award for boxing writing. Just by coincidence, I wound up seated next to the great fighter, Jake LaMotta, who was the subject of the film, Martin Scorsese's film, Raging Bull, who at this point was in his late 80s or early 90s. And he was a guy who was completely disengaged from everything around him, whatever his life had been didn't seem to interest him much anymore. And he paid no attention to anyone. Um, But when it came time to eat, he dove into his food and his wife who accompanied him everywhere in those days saw that I wasn't eating what everyone else was eating. And she said, Jake, Charles is a vegetarian. And it was the only time he showed any animation. He goes, he's a what? And she said, he doesn't eat any meat. And she said, what? He don't eat no meat? He don't eat no steak? (laughs) And she said, no, 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 Jake. He's a vegetarian. And he said, what? (laughs) And she said, he doesn't eat any meat. And he says, he don't eat no meat. (laughs) He don't eat no steak. And uh, she said, no. And he, you know, looked at me. And it was sort of the only time he was alert. And then he went back to doing what he was doing, which was, you know, eating his steak. But it was very funny. I mean, I just thought, well, this is an exchange with a, you know, within, in my business anyway, a really legendary figure. And, uh, you know, at least this got his attention for a couple of seconds. You blew his mind. (laughs) Briefly, briefly. That is, that is really interesting. So what drew you to the vegetarian vegan lifestyle? Well, uh, it's, this is interesting because, you know, I've had very, very few actual epiphanies in life. And I don't think that people really have too many of them. You know, sometimes they think they do. But, you know, in fact, you learn things mostly. But for me, becoming a vegetarian was a genuine epiphany. What happened was um, I was watching late night TV and there was a strange film called Mondo Kane. And Mondo Kane was a film that was about, primarily was about um, 
various rituals throughout the world, strange rituals. And, uh, you know, it was a film that was a kind of sensationalist film made for shock value, largely. And um, there was a scene where people, I remember them being in Samoa, and I think that that's where they were, but it was a long time ago. And they were patting these puppies in a cage. And it turns out they were picking their meal. And that completely changed my life. I thought, if they can't tell the difference between a meal and their brothers and sisters, then I can't either. And I'm not going to eat anything that's, that's ever been alive. I just won't do it ever again. And, and I stopped. Um, and that was, it will be 56 years ago in November. And I never oh. thought about eating meat again. That's incredible. How, so you said you're from a carnivorous family. What did they think? How did they accept or not accept your epiphany? Well, I lived a strange life. So I was about 14. Well, I had just turned 14 when I became a vegetarian. And I had already stopped living at home. Um, so they... You know, they, they no one would have had a say in it anyway. But um, I, I would say that they were probably bewildered, maybe slightly concerned. But <laughs> nobody ever attempted to stop me. Um, I was a pretty determined kid. All right. Now that we have your veg story, I am eager to talk about your history because. It's just not the type of background that makes me think, oh, totally a vegetarian. Uh, and, and so in one of the podcasts I heard, uh, you were talking about your life as, uh, as someone who, whose distant relative was part of the mob and had money and had this, this lifestyle that uh, seemed appealing, and and then you got more involved and became a a loan shark and a fight fixer. Can you tell us the um, the how that trajectory went for you? Well, you know, I'm sort of cursed with some good luck and some bad luck, and the good luck is that I had an aptitude for a couple of things. The bad luck is I had an aptitude for only a couple of things. So really, I didn't have that many choices. I didn't go to school. I didn't live at home. Um, I decided to start a, an adult life very, very early just because I thought I could. And two of the things that I found that I was able to do, I could play piano and I could play piano professionally, which I started doing when I was 12. And I understood, and I'm not sure how this has happened, I understood a lot about boxing. And so I wound up giving advice to mobsters, uh, at first through my, my uncle, who was a wonderful guy, um, and later on, on my own initiative. So I sort of wound up you know, fluctuating between being a working musician and being a gangster. And I did that from the time I was very, very young. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I was 
a vegetarian even then. So this this strange cultural bifurcation that you get, where you know you, you're around people who do things that are completely different than what you're doing, and yet I never had a problem. Uh, even even the vegetarianism, which back in those days was pretty much unheard of, um, was greeted with a surprising amount of sympathy. You know which. I wouldn't have expected. It's um, interesting because the idea of cognitive dissonance, we usually think of it in one direction, right? Like for people who are vegan, you're like, just, I don't understand how these seemingly nice people can just go about eating animals. And it just, that connection hasn't been made in their mind. And so they absolutely can go on being what in their mind is behaving as a perfectly ethical human being based on what they know and what they're thinking about and what they're rationalizing in their brain. And it works the other way too, you know, and you're a living, breathing example of that where maybe you can rationalize other actions of your life that other people might look on and be like, oh my, you did what? But you can also be looking at at food and just like, did you look at your holistic self throughout the trajectory of your experiences and think, I am a holistically ethical person? Like, was that part of your identity? I'm just curious. Um, that's a great question. No, no, I didn't. Uh, you know, of course, we're all capable of incredible self-delusion. And I'm, you know, I'm certainly as much victim to that as, as anybody else. And so there were things that, in hindsight, I now see as being deeply unethical. But many things that I think would generally be considered unethical, I believed then and believe now, are completely justifiable, and I wouldn't have done them had I thought they were wrong. For example, I think fight-fixing is largely seen to be an unethical um, you know, endeavor, and yet I deeply believe in it, and I still believe in it, and, I'm, you know, and it comes from an informed place. On the other hand, you know, I can't simply pass that off as altruism because it's how I made my living, too. So it becomes pretty murky, right? I'm doing these things um, to make money, but I also think that they're right. And so, you know, the argument that you would frame for doing some of the things I did would be a fairly ambiguous argument in some ways. Um, so, but no, I mean, no, I was certainly, you know, things like loan sharking, loan sharking is not a holistic activity, you know, and I, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. And I'm, it's one of the things that I'm sorry I ever did. For, for those who don't know what fight fixing and loan sharking are, can you please explain? Mm -hmm. Well, fight fixing, which is, was primarily what I did for quite a number of years is predetermining the outcome of a boxing match. And there were a number of reasons that you do that. One is because you're betting and so you can make money on the bets. The other is that if you manage fighters, which is what I did for a long time, you're trying to further their careers. And this is a way to shortcut doing that. And it's a way to ensure that you get the results that you want. Loan sharking is lending money to people who don't have money. And um, 
you charge an exorbitant interest rate in order to lend them the money. They're you know, the people who simply can't get money from banks or lending institutions. And of course, it's illegal. As a matter of fact, both both activities are illegal. Um, and I, I, you know, um, the loan sharking really had more to do with collecting money from uh, for others than it did my loan sharking. For one thing, I didn't have the kind of money that you you need to be a loan shark. Uh, you have to have very deep pockets. But you know, it, it's it's um, you know, it's a disenfranchised part of our culture. I only know this from the movie, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but there are some serious, um, potentially violent consequences for not paying your debts. Is is that correct? That is correct. And one of the things that that really stood out to me when I was reading about your story was that you were participating in, in loan sharking, yet you would go out of your way to save a spider to to not be harmed. Uh, you had this, this care for animals uh, that may have been disconnected to your care of, of humans. Is that is that right? I would say it's probably right. Now, you know, I I'm not a violent person by nature and I'm not a tough guy. Um, and when it came to collecting money, I was generally sent as a kind of goodwill ambassador because the, the loan, the serious loan sharks thought that there were people I could talk to who they couldn't talk to. And as is true in any business, um, the goal is to get paid with as little um, collateral consequences you know, as few collateral consequences as possible. So if someone can pay up with not, without being hurt, that's always the preferred way to do it. I mean, I know there's a kind of cinematic notion that people who do this kind of thing love violence and they, you know, their their default mode is to hurt somebody. And of course, that's not true, not necessarily because they wouldn't do it, but because it's impractical. So, my job was largely one of diplomat. You know, that, that, that doesn't just justify it by any, you know, by, uh, in, in it, by any means. But, um, but it's true. I mean, there was a real disconnect in that a lot of what I did, including boxing, if you think about it, which is a, you know, fundamentally violent activity, um, got people hurt. And boxing certainly gets people hurt. And you're right. I mean, it, it, I go to great, great lengths not to kill any living thing under any circumstances, which means mosquitoes, which means flies. Um, you know, if it's alive, I will not hurt it. And, um, you know, and as a consequence, and I know this sounds strange and I'm not, and I don't know what to make of it, but I don't get bitten or stung by insects. And I haven't for many, many years. Wow. Yeah, I don't get that, mosquito bites or, you know, or uh, stung by bees or wasps or anything. That, uh, everyone, listen, listen to this. You don't need, uh, try not to harm insects and maybe it'll pay off for you too. It'll pay off for you no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, there's this 
I grew up listening to rap music and there's this one song um, by the rapper named Tupac. Who, he has a song called Changes and there's um, a line in the song about uh, this guy selling drugs to children and he's he's talking to Tupac and Tupac was like, well, I guess that's the way it is. And it it always stuck with me because so much of of the actions that people have taken in their lives are uh, systemic and a part of the culture of the of where they grew up and what they saw. Do you feel that that's that's how it was for you? You had an uncle who lived in a particular way, and that's what you learned. Do you feel like that's true? No, no, I don't. No, uh, no, okay. no. I, uh, I mean, I, he was somebody I admired. I did. I didn't understand illegal activity at the time. So, um, you know, I, I liked the fact that he was a gregarious, generous figure, and you know, and and it was someone who was capable of showing emotion. And those are those are wonderful qualities. They, in fact, still you know still are. They apply to him. But no, I, I don't. I don't come from a cultural background that would have led me to any of these things other than music. I grew up in a family that were, you know, consisted of professional musicians. So that was something I could do from an early age. But no, I, um, I, I don't come from a disadvantaged background in any way. I didn't, when I was a kid, I didn't need money. Um, I just, I was just impatient. You know, I I wanted to start an adult life very, very early, and I decided to do that. And, you know, I made, I was going to say uninformed choices, um, and that's part of it, you know, because I think maybe when you're really young, you're too egotistical to understand the consequences of your actions, you don't understand that, you know, because if, if you're living an adult life as a kid, in a sense, you're not really living an adult life. What you're doing is you're living a fantasy life. You're living a movie life. Really, that's it. It's a cinematic life, you know. And so the consequences of your actions tend to be seen cinematically, too. You know, you don't think, well, these are people who've got families, they've got children, they've got their own problems, and these things are all very, very real, and you should be mindful of those issues. Um, and when you're a kid, you at least I didn't. I simply wasn't capable of doing that. And as I got older, um, you know, and, and certainly by no means overnight, but you learn as you go. You know, you you understand, um, uh, um, you have a more well-balanced overview of the life you're living. Um, um, At what point did you start moving away from that life? I would say I started moving away from that life when... First of all, when I when I understood that a lot of the people for whom I was working really were very very bad guys, and I I became afraid of them, you know, because I made some mistakes and my life was in danger. Um, there were people who were capable of killing me and decided that they were going to kill me. So that certainly, you know, I would say had had an influence on my decision making. Um, 
But because I was in the boxing business, I moved away from being a boxing fan as I was when I was a kid to being in the gyms constantly and being around the fighters and moving their careers and making matches for them. And I started to see and recognize the cumulative effect that they went through in their professions and how neurologically damaged they were and how much of their lives were taken from them and the kind of financial inequities that they had to go through because they weren't educated and certainly weren't aware of money. And I thought of myself as implicated in some things that were were wrong. You know, and it didn't happen overnight. And unlike with what happened with becoming a vegetarian, it wasn't an epiphany. You know, it was a gradual process. Um, but I have to say that animals factored into a lot of my decisions because I understood that I, I had a way inherently of responding humanely to animals. You know, I think that I had a sort of uh, ethical um, predisposition toward animals. And it occurred to me that I was running head, head on into a blind spot, which I did all the time, which was refusing to see humans as animals. If I could see them as animals, part of the animal brother and sisterhood, where we're all family, I could feel both a sympathy and an empathy for them that I otherwise couldn't. And that took a long time, and I still struggle with it. It's still something I don't do particularly well. But the more I can do that, the more I can behave ethically. And I credit animals with bringing me to that. That is so fascinating. It's so interesting to think about empathy, which I kind of think of as being a kind of intuitive thing. Like you, you have it or you don't, but it really is a muscle and it is something that we can foster or we can neglect. We can like really open our minds and hearts to those feelings of connection with others. Um, or we can use our brain to, to rationalize or even subconsciously just like turn off those feelings and enable us to think ourselves out of having to feel a camaraderie with others. Um, and we see humans do it to other types of humans, anyone who's different from them. And then humans do it to animals all the time. But I think it's so fascinating that you flip-flopped the other way and inherently felt more connected to animals and then worked yourself into connecting more with empathy with other humans. That is so fascinating. But, you know, you know, I, I think that if you don't have a kind of natural empathy, and I, and I don't really, and I, you know, to, to, you know, to my regret toward humans, the first step to do it sometimes, I mean, animals served as the conduit that I needed, but you can also make a, a conscious decision, which is not a heartfelt decision in the beginning. You're thinking, at least this is how it worked for me. I thought, if I don't feel the right thing, I can at least consciously do the right thing. And the feeling will come. 
you know, the, the feeling that was so natural with animals. It's just a question of realigning the way I see things. And once that happens, the empathy will become heartfelt uh, as opposed to something that was done cognitively. And I think that's happened. You know, and I mean, that's one of the things I keep thinking in terms of people changing their diet, for example, that regardless how you market something or package it or, you know, try to sell it as the right choice, the way people are going to change in, in regard to what they eat is through their hearts. Mm-hmm. Did you have a hard time when you weren't feeling like intuitively? empathetic, just like figuring out what was the right thing. Cause I know when it comes to eating meat, a lot of people just think, well, animals don't really, you know, feel in the same way or think of the, you know, they have, have thoughts about animals that rationalizes in, in their mind that, okay, cool. Choose to be vegetarian or vegan, but I'm not actually doing anything wrong here. The right thing might actually be to eat animals as nature intended. Like, did you have any trouble navigating what was right or wrong when you didn't have that line of empathy pulling you in a direction? I I did and I do. Yeah, I I think it's something I have to maintain constantly. Um, You know, not that I would do the things that I used to do when I was younger, I wouldn't. But uh, yeah, I I think, uh, you know, I'm often uncertain uh, you know i'm selfish and uh you know if if there are reasons for me to be antagonistic you know i'll use them if i think they help me um i'll, I'll give you an example i know a lot of people who are anti donald trump and i am very very anti donald trump he's a guy who i've run into before and about whom i have no respect whatsoever. I don't necessarily want to make this a political screed. But I know a lot of people want to see harm come to him. And, you know, that's the kind – I don't want that. It's, it's, an, it's a non-productive thing. It's not about Donald Trump. I don't actually care what happens to Donald Trump. But there's a bigger picture. And so – what I try and do is see the bigger picture. And Donald Trump is a very, very small player in that picture. And so distancing myself from the kind of retribution that people might want to feel towards someone like Donald Trump, who really is a person of no value at all, um, that seems like a step forward, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people could understand those feelings. Um, It's do you have any other tips for people who are trying to work through themselves of making decisions one way or another um, and being able to, able to tap into what feels right? Well, I mean, the, the simplest one, and this is the one that I really do feel toward animals and always have, um, and, you know, is animals all feel like my brothers and sisters. They really do. I, I you know, I don't mean to sound... Um, overly sentimental or melodramatic about it, but that's what they feel like. They feel like my brothers and sisters. And so, so you know, it, it's easy for me, relatively speaking, to behave ethically toward animals. I think if you can somehow expand on that and extend that 
to include everything that's alive, you will start to behave differently. You know, you'll be responsible in ways that you might not have been before, and you won't, you know, you won't justify behavior that you have to make excuses for. You know, this is the way it's intended to be. It's the way it always has been. You can say, well, wait, it doesn't have to be this way. And there are, you have choices and you can make these choices. And I mean, I, I, and anyway, that's the way I try and do it. And I'm not always successful, but that's, that's the closest I can get. A lot of our, a lot of our listeners, they're new, they're newer to plant-based, plant-based living. And as someone who is now a seasoned veg, veg man, well, I'm, I'm, just to be clear, I'm, I'm have been vegan for a long, long time. I'm I'm not vegetarian. I'm vegan. Uh, I started out vegetarian many years ago, but I'm I've been vegan for a long time. Got it. Uh, I, uh, as someone who is vegan, can you give tips for how you maintain that kindness and compassion within your own social social circles? You know, I th- I think that what holds true for one thing, and this you know tends to be what you can do easily, if it's ethical, it holds true across the line. So what you have to think in terms of, I would say, is ethics. You know, always. So you, in a sense, what you try to do is take yourself out of the equation, um, not take your feelings out of the equation so much. But if you have a fairly strong moral or ethical conviction towards something, um, I, I think what you do is you you just m- make a very conscious decision all the time to try to hold to it. You know, it's an imperfect system and you're not going to get it right all the time. But after a while, you start to realize when you're doing something wrong for reasons of expedience and you're able to back away from that, you know, you start to not make the easy decision. And after a little while, not making the easy decision becomes the easy decision. I mean, for example, now it was easy for me to stop eating living things. And it's not, I know it's not that easy for everybody else. We all have different systems and, you know, um, we respond differently. But, you know, I think one of the things that I, 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 I have to say, I think that the plant-based industry is complicit in this to an extent. They're still thinking of terms, in terms of this stuff tastes like meat. You know, this it's plant-based, but it tastes like steak. It tastes, tastes like chicken. It tastes now. I think, but steak and chicken are not food. They're not food. They're no more food than plastic would be. You know, so I think. Well, you know, again, maybe this is because I haven't tasted any of that stuff in fifty-five years, so I don't remember what it tastes like. But. You know, I, I think it's probably, it might be a good strategy. 
I, I say might, might be a good strategy to start to promote plant-based stuff on its own merit as opposed to, you know, beyond meat. You know, this stuff tastes good. Don't compare it to something else. It's good on its own terms. And if, I think if we start to think in terms of plant-based food as being wonderful tasting food on its own terms, not as compared to something else, maybe that makes the transition a little bit easier. You know, it's completely, completely speculative, but I think it might be worth something, maybe worth investigating. Yeah, you touched on a very controversial topic. I know people either feel very strongly one way or the other way in terms of they want their food to very much imitate the things that they're no longer eating but wish they could be eating. And then the people who are like, "Ah, I don't want to be eating. the foods that I'm choosing not to eat. But I would love to I would love to bring the conversation to your experiences eating with the people around you. You had a very diverse circles of of friends and, and associates throughout the you know five plus decades of being vegetarian and vegan. And I know it's like you've had scenarios taking out boxing and musician friends to favorite vegan restaurants. You mentioned a restaurant in your book, Buddha's Delight, sharing this animal-free cooking with people who maybe have never been exposed to it before. What was that like? You know, it it was almost uniformly a great experience, Uh, partially because, as I said, this food tastes good. And so, you know, the the fighters or even gangsters, they would be surprised and then they'd be very, very happy. I, I don't know that it changed their diets in any way because partially because it wasn't convenient to get to these places. But, um, you know, I think they were surprised at how closely the experience m- mirrored what they would have going to one of their restaurants. Um, you know, the, the big thing in the beginning had more to do with um, issues of health. You know, people assume that you couldn't you couldn't live, you couldn't be healthy if you didn't eat, you know, meat or or milk or things like that. Um, I remember I I had a an uncle when I was about twelve who said. Look at the size of your feet. You've got, I, I have size 13 and a half shoes. I have enormous feet. And he said, how tall are you? And I said, I'm five foot 10. And he said, well, you see, there's proof. You're not supposed to be five foot 10. You're supposed to be six foot four with, you know, or six foot five with feet that size. And he didn't understand there was, there was no connection to the two things at all. And certainly nobody in my family you know, he's six foot four or six foot five. You know, I just happen to have big feet. But um, so there were all these misconceptions. And surprisingly enough, that's one of the things that mobsters of all people were concerned about. They would say to me, well, you know, aren't you going to get sick? And, you know, in, in the mid-1960s, nobody knew. I mean, people, of course, or informed knew, but I think the general populace actually believed that what you were doing was unhealthy, and that's not the case anymore. 
So something that people struggle with still today is just approaching the the situation of going out to eat with with someone at at a place. And I'm curious how that went down. If you're, you know, hey, hey, mobster friend, we're going to meet at this at this dining facility. Would you tell them in advance? Like, I'm going to take you to a vegan place, just give it a shot. Or would you sneak it up on them? And then they show up and they're like, what? There's only soybeans on the menu. Like, <laughs> how did that, like, how did the conversation go down? Give us an example. No, I would tell them, you know, and of course, if you tell them that you're paying for it, that's that's an incentive to get them there. <laughs> so, you know, it's on me. Um, no, that I would tell them. I would always tell them. But, you know, what was more interesting, I don't know, more interesting, but of interest is how you deal with going to their places. You know, because obviously I'm not going to eat any of the things that they're eating. And at first... That was a little tricky because nobody knew what I could eat and what I couldn't eat. And they, you know, um, you know, well, if this isn't, this isn't meat, it's chicken. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. Or, you know, it's fish. Well, that's not, that's not the criterion I use. But, um, but I, I had to and still have to, to a degree, come to a decision, uh, I guess maybe a moral decision about what I can live with when when other people are eating. And that's a tricky question because, you know, uh, not to be too negative here, but, you know, I think that eating meat is killing. I, you know, the, there's no other way I can see it. Um, so I have to amend issues of right and wrong. So, cause I'm talking about what is right for me. If I see these things as killing, it is wrong, clearly wrong for me. They don't see that. And I have to, as much as I personally disagree with it, I have to respect their decision. You know, I, hopefully I can provide some kind of an example which may sway them in some way, but if it doesn't, you know what? What do I say? Do they stop being my friends? Do they stop? Well, no, they don't. Um, so, to me, that's a sort of morally complex issue. It would become another element to your story if you became <laughs> the musician, mobster, loan shark, <laughs> boxing fix fighter. Uh, fight fixer with no friends because <laughs> you would probably have no friends if you're writing off literally everyone in your circle who ate me, right? <laughs> well, no, I've, I've, got, I've got a lot of friends who, who have uh, very, very healthy eating habits too. Uh, oh, that's so, awesome. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, you know, a great number of my friends are vegan and have been vegan for many, many years. Um, many people in my close circle are. So, um, no, I mean, I know a lot of vegan people. Well, before we wrap up, you've had a lot of life experience in a lot of different circles. Uh, and I'm just curious if you have any other advice to share with our listeners who many are on the on the earlier steps into <laughs> to being vegan. Just what advice do you have to share from your life? Well, may, maybe the first thing to people who are considering being vegan is that um, 
it's not the sacrifice that you might think it is. It's not as difficult. There are so many options now. There's so much good cooking that is vegan that you won't you won't deprive yourself. I mean, there's so there's a there's a, a an overview that needs to be adjusted in order to do it. Maybe. You know, where you think this is what I've done my whole life and I like it and it's easy for me and I'm going to, I'm going to lose these pleasures. And I think that that might not be true. And so I would say, at least initially, um, don't prejudge. Try this. And you might find that you not only haven't sacrificed anything, um in terms of a kind of karma you've put yourself in much much better shape and i think you know i'm i'm somebody who can talk about bad karma pretty well and you know good karma is always at a premium so i would say if you can try and think lovingly try and think with your heart um and understand that in doing that, you're not going to give up these things that you think of as being valuable to you, that what replaces them takes their place very, very easily, and in the larger picture, puts you in a much better position in the world. I think that's really beautiful way to close. It is so true. You gain so much more than you quote unquote lose. Um, and we hear that with pretty much every guest who goes, comes on the show and most everyone that we talk to who's been vegan has that same feeling. So thank you so much for sharing your story, your words of inspiration. Um, I'm curious where people can connect with you. And can you tell us uh, a little bit about your book and where we can find it? Well, you can find my book on Amazon. I'm published by a company called Hamilcar Publications. You can get my book through them. The book is called Low Life, a memoir of jazz, fight fixing, and the mob. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. So it's it's out there. You can find it. It's um, it's doing surprisingly well on Amazon, much to my you know. Uh, <laughs> confused delight. So you, I'm there. Please look for me. Awesome. I feel like we could have talked about your past for seven more hours and uh, have not really even touched the surface. So uh, thank you again. And we will put your book in our show notes so that people um, can easily find it. And we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great pleasure, Tony and Michelle. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Before we sign off, a quick reminder to be sure to check out our sponsors of this episode, Better Than Bouillon and Maxine's Heavenly. Better Than Bouillon has an awesome discount code for you. You can get free shipping throughout the U.S. with the code PLANTPOWERED at checkout at betterthanbouillon.com. We highly recommend their no chicken base and their seasoned vegetable base. So yummy. We'd also like to thank Maxine's Heavenly. 
I love their cookies so much. Their super soft almond chocolate chunk cookies are my favorite. They are gluten-free and vegan, and most importantly, super delicious. You can also save 25% off with our code PLANTS25, P-L-A-N-T-S-25 at maxinesheavenly.com. We'll also put that in the show notes. Thank you again. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Charles. Um, And if you have missed the past few episodes, we've had some really great ones focusing on a vegan athlete, on mastering diabetes, on a rural vegan. We've talked all about composting. So if you missed our past episodes, be sure to check them out. You can find them all wherever you listen to podcasts or at plantpoweredpodcast.com. And be sure to uh, check out all the show notes at the same place. And if you want to check out our cookbook, we'll be so happy. Uh, it is the Friendly Vegan Cookbook. And you can get more info at the Friendly Vegan Cookbook. Uh, friendlyvegancookbook.com. And also, if you want to support our podcast, two ways are super helpful. One, leaving a review. They are so meaningful to us and help people find out about um, how to stay plant-based. And then on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash plant-powered people, you can um, sponsor our podcast and we'd be forever grateful. Thank you so much for all the support, for just tuning in, sending you lots of love, and we will talk to you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.